really. Um, but yeah, there is clearly a lot of chatter uh, going on. There are these little things that happen uh, or that other people do in life that sometimes rub us the wrong way that test our patience. And that's what we're going to be thinking about a little bit this afternoon. Patience. In, uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes towards the end of chapter 5, and he gives this list of the fruit that should be growing in our lives if we are connected to the Spirit of God. And one of those fruits is patience, or also translated as forbearance or long-suffering. But that idea of enduring, and sometimes it might be on a very small, frustrating scale, and sometimes it's on a much bigger, grander, harder scale. But there are times in life when our patience is tested, when we are pushed, when we are challenged, when we struggle to endure what is going on around us. And so we're going to be thinking about that a little bit today. Now, I'm afraid to say from the get-go that I don't have like a magic button to make you suddenly more patient. Like, you're not all just going to flood out the doors here and like any issues in traffic is nothing and like any little niggles that family members do is nothing again. Like, I can't magic away those frustrations that we sometimes have in life. But I think there is a challenge for us about how we can grow in patience when we trust in our God. But God, from my experience, tends to be more of a kind of teach a man to fish kind of guy rather than give a man a fish. And there is a process of learning that's involved that will help us become more patient and change our understanding. One of the things I, I work as a, as a youth worker as my kind of main work, and I quite often use this as an example when we're chatting with young people about prayer and something you should maybe even be cautious about when it comes to prayer. And the example I quite often use is patience. So, say you're sitting there and you're praying to God, and you're like, God, I pray that I might be more patient, which is a perfectly fine prayer to pray. But I add the warning to that is that is God more likely to uh, magic you that patience so that you're fine and dandy forevermore, that there's never an issue that ever riles you up the wrong way, or is He more likely to give you opportunities that challenge you, and that test your patience, that grow your patience. Well, my experience is the latter. So, just a word of warning to be ready for that process, because learning isn't always an easy thing to do. It takes time, it takes change, it takes growing. But it is worth it in the end. Now, some of you might be there thinking, going, isn't patience a little bit menial for us to be thinking about? Like, there's bigger, more important spiritual things to be talking about than how patient I am in a queue or in traffic or whatever. But I would suggest that actually patience is a really important virtue for us to understand. Why? Because often the moments that push our patience, that lead us to a place of frustration, they might be a venting of a little thing, but often it's underlying a bigger thing. There's often stuff at work in us that might explode out because someone said the wrong stupid thing, whatever, but actually what's going on underneath 
There is more turmoil, there is more uncertainty, there is more anguish there, and patience is often the outworking of how still and how calm we are at our core and at our center. And so it is really important for us to think about our contentment in life, our sustainability in life, our core in life, because from that we often go out and encounter the world around us. And from a steady place, it is much easier to have patience than from a rough and hard place. I'm going to start by jumping into a little bit of Luke's gospel. So if you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to follow along. It'll be on the screens. There are also a selection of Bibles uh, to my left and right. But we're jumping into Luke chapter 10, and that's right at the end of Luke 10 with uh, verse 38. A story that I'm sure a number of you will recognize. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on their way. Now, Jesus had been kind of wandering around the local area. He'd been teaching. He'd been sharing, that kind of thing. And then he gets here. He came to a village where a woman named Martha lived. She welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was busy with all the things that had to be done. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Don't you care? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Really, only one is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Don't know about you, but I can definitely relate to Martha in that story. There are times uh, in life when stuff is, is just seems to be, need to be done. There's like a checklist of things, and particularly in a situation maybe where you've invited a guest to the house, and, and you need to make sure that things are tidy, because, I mean, you can't have a guest thinking you live in a messy house, and you've got to make sure that they've got like food and snacks, and you're being hospitable, and you, you're welcoming them in, and that their needs are met. There's a checklist of stuff to be done to make sure that the guest gets the right opinion of you, and also that they feel nice and welcomed in your home. And so you go on and you do and you do. And it's easy to get caught up in that cycle of doing, of things that we must do, that we feel we must do, the checklist of things that we have to go on with. Problem with that is that from time to time, the checklist can seem endless. There's always something else that needs done. There's always something else that needs our attention. And so we spend our whole lives busy running from one affair to the next, one occasion to the next, one thing we need to do to the next, caught up in the busyness of life, ticking off that checklist, but never really completing it. And don't mistake me here, because busyness is not a bad thing. There are things that need to be done, and sometimes things will ask a lot of our time. It's the way that life goes. But there's also a need to do as Mary does, and to still ourselves in life. A question that I would ask, why, and particularly if you're a busy person, I would say this, why do you feel the need to be so busy? Why do you feel the need to always be doing something? Because there's some of us that really do feel a bit like that. We feel this need to constantly be doing something. 
And I worry that that can actually often be an outworking of inner insecurities, of maybe needing to prove our worth, because we've got to be doing something. And if we're doing something, we're showing that we're worthwhile, we're showing that we're valuable. And so, we're, we're constantly doing, because we've always got to be doing to show that, that we have value and that we have worth. It's our way of proving that value and that worth by being busy, by doing, by picking up the next task and the next task and the next task. Or maybe it's, it's more to do with how other people see you, just a bit, maybe a bit like Martha in her home. She had to make sure that her home looked the way she thought it should look to Jesus. She wanted to cover up the mess that's going on, so she's running on to the next task out of a concern for what other people will think. It's easy to put pressure on ourselves or to feel that others are putting pressure on us, and so we must do. Doing isn't a bad thing, but I would ask you the question, why do you do? Why do you feel the need time and again to do rather than to stop and to be? Because Jesus in this little passage challenges Martha's attitude of always doing. He says, actually, Mary's the one that's got it right here. She might not be doing anything, but she is being. She's being in His presence. She sees the opportunity for what it is. Jesus is in their home. The Jesus. He is there. He is present with them. She has an opportunity to hear what Jesus has to say, to listen to Him, to be present with Jesus. Of course, you take that kind of opportunity. The dishes and the cleaning and the food, they pale in comparison to the opportunity to spend time with God. And in spending time with Jesus, Jesus speaks truth into our lives, into who we are and what we are called to be. It's important from time to time in our lives before we do be. Be one of the children of God. Be someone called by Jesus. Grab hold of our identity in God and rest ourselves in Him. And from that place, yes, we can go and we can do. But our doing is not a justification of ourselves. It's an outworking of our understanding of ourselves. We do because God is at work, and we want to be part of what He is doing, not that we feel we need to justify our existence by doing it. You could sit where you are for the rest of your life, unmoving for however many days or months or years that might be, and it does not change one iota of the love of God for you. As Christians, to be honest, we don't need to do anything. We are called to be, but out of that being, we are then inspired to do. More often than not, I feel like people get it the wrong way around. They work at their faith, and they work, and they work, and they exhaust themselves, never stopping to just listen, to hear, to be in the presence of God. The psalmist writes at the end of 46, He causes the wars to end throughout the earth. 
He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored in every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Be still and know. We can do, but we do from the right reasons, from a place of understanding and stillness in God. And out of that, we can get passionate for what He is doing. There's a psychological test that um, some of you might have heard of before, and I'm going to badly paraphrase it a little bit. I suggest you maybe look into it fully if you want a full understanding. But it's called the marshmallow test, which some of you might have heard of before. Um, The gist of the test is that there's a young child placed in a room, and in front of them is one marshmallow. And the, the child is told, you can have that marshmallow right now if you want it. It's yours. Take it. Or you can wait. You can wait for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then if you've waited, you'll get two marshmallows. Now, everyone knows two marshmallows is better than one marshmallow, but 10, 15 minutes is a long time to wait for a child. Now, originally when this test was done, as you might guess, the presumption of the test was that it was a test of willpower. Children with the most willpower were more likely to wait it out and get two marshmallows. Kids with less willpower, well, they were uh, more likely to just grab the marshmallow straight away. And that might have been an indicator of future life, that if they, at this young stage, had a good sense of willpower, well, they're maybe more likely to do greater things in the future because they are, have that stronger sense of will. Thing is, some psychologists came back to this test a number of years later because they weren't entirely convinced by the results. Um, And they did a much bigger study. Um, I think it went for like the first one was maybe around 90 children involved. The second time around, they did more like 900 children involved. And they found a different set of results with the much bigger pool uh, taken from. They found that it was actually a test not of willpower at all, but of affluence. Children who had come from a more affluent background were much more likely to wait for two marshmallows because they came from a place of stability. They had a home where they could trust their parents, where they knew that if their parents said something was going to happen, it was likely to happen. They had confidence in that trust relationship, and they were more likely to wait and get that second marshmallow. But kids who had come from a less affluent background, a less stable home, were much more likely to take the one marshmallow because it was there and they could have it right now and they didn't really know what the future would bring. That uncertainty caused them to take what they could get rather than gamble on what they might not. Now, I'm going to go so far as to suggest that that same principle is true for us and for God. If we do not know God, if we have a lack of relationship with God, if we have not built up trust in Him, well, when things come our way, we are much more likely to be insecure, to be less patient, to be more apprehensive about the situation, because it's really just about what we can do in the moment, and we have no perspective beyond that. But the more that we spend time in God's presence, a little bit like Mary, the more that we listen, the more that we come to His Word to pray, to know Him, to discover the things of Him, to greater our experience of Him, well, we are more likely 
to trust Him, to put faith in Him. Even when situations come in our way that we're not sure of the result, out of experience, understanding, and a growing trust, we can have faith. But it does take that commitment to learn, to know, to build a relationship and to trust. As we experience Him, we learn to know God. As we learn to know Him, we trust Him. And as we trust Him, well, then we can learn to wait on Him. One of my uh, favorite kind of bits from the Old Testament, which I have quoted once or twice before because I'm a big fan, but it's the book of Habakkuk. I'm a huge fan of uh, Habakkuk's book, and I think I have preached in here before on Habakkuk's book, and I'm not going to spend too long there, but I think it's a great example of this kind of a principle. In the first chapter of Habakkuk's writing, uh, in chapter number one, he comes to God with a whole series of questions like things that he just does not get, he does not understand. Particularly for him, his nation just seems to be falling apart. They seem to be forgetting their identity as God's children. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get what they're doing. And he's like, God, what is going on here? And why aren't you doing anything about it? God then responds, and he says he is going to do something about it, but that something involves exile, Babylonians, and a lot more like complexity and trauma than Habakkuk was expecting. And he is just like, whoa, overwhelmed by the situation. He has many understandable questions, and we are allowed to have questions in faith, things that we don't get and that we don't understand. That is okay. It is okay to be able to ask questions of God, to find yourself in a place in life where you're like, I just don't get it, to come to God in prayer and be like, God, what is going on here? I don't understand. I want it to be this way, but it doesn't seem to be this way. Help me here, God. It is okay for us to have questions in faith, but we can't stay there. Trust in God is what takes our questions and moves them on to the next thing that Habakkuk does. He asks God honestly the the things that he does not get, and then at the beginning of chapter 2, he says this, what's God going to say to my questions? I'm braced for the worst. I'll climb to the lookout tower and scan the horizon. I'll wait to see what God says, how he will answer my complaint. Habakkuk is honest with God about the reality of life as he sees it and the struggles that he does not understand. He brings them to God in honesty. Then he waits because he knows God. He trusts God. He knows that God is bigger than any of his worries and his concerns. He is a God that is big enough that it can encompass any of his challenges and his uncertainties. God is not going to be knocked off guard because you've got the zinger question that unpins everything of faith. If faith is worthwhile, we can ask any question of God, because God, by definition, must be bigger than it. But it is trust and it is faith that grows that confidence that allows us to ask and then allows us to wait, to still, to be calm, to know that He is God. And that's what Habakkuk does. He waits. 
He waits. And God does eventually, in His time, respond. And to be fair, He doesn't respond the way that Abhagook would like. It's not the cheery, hopeful message, at least at that time and for that place that Habakkuk was wanting. And sometimes that's the reality of our prayers. We can ask things of God. We can ask God to intervene in situations. We can beg and plead and cry out, and we don't get the answer that we hope for. But our trust in God must be our foundation our stillness in Him, our understanding of Him, if that is our foundation, then even the hardest situations, even the ones where we don't get the answers that we hope for, even the things that we cannot understand or comprehend, well, still we know that we can trust in Him because He is bigger than them. Even if things don't work out as we'd look for, as we'd hope for, as we'd ask for, we still can have faith in God because we know God. At the end of Habakkuk chapter 3, he speaks these words, the fig tree might not bud, the vines might not produce any grapes, the olive crop might fail, the fields might not produce any fruit, there may be no sheep in the pens, there might not be any cattle in the barns, but still I will be glad because of what the Lord has done. God, my Savior, fills me with joy. The Lord and King gives me strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He helps me walk on the highest places. Even in the times of most uncertainty, when things just do not seem to be as we understand them to be, where we don't get where things are going, still God is there Still God is present, and He offers us His strength, His love, His care, that with Him we can journey through them. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends out the disciples to basically build the church that leads to us today. He gives them the great commission, but it finishes with these incredibly encouraging words. I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age, stilled in the knowledge that God is with us, that He remains. Like, just as we think of around Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. That has to be our foundation. That has to be our core understanding as we go out into the world. If that is our starting place, there is nothing that can sweep us away. If that is our foundation, nothing is too grand, too big, too dangerous, too concerning, because we are in Him and He is in us, and we can trust in Him. Because right at the beginning, talked about patience as a fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit is something that grows, but it grows in connection to the vine, the Spirit of God in us. That is the invitation to each and every one of us that if we let God into our lives, we let His Spirit into us. 
that he is with us, guiding us, moving us, both in and around us in the world, that the Spirit of God is always present. Paul in 2 Corinthians writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in us, transforming us, growing us, bringing out these fruit that come from the Spirit, especially that of patience, if we are willing to let Him. If we're willing to not let our busyness, our doing, our insecurities, if we're willing to let them not get in the way and let God do His work. And sometimes that can be active, and sometimes that's like Mary, sitting and knowing and listening to God. But it's not just in the present. You see, our hope isn't just grounded in the world as we see it here and now. It's grounded in a promise of what is to come that the work that God is doing in us, that the work that is being done around us is but a taste of the glory that is to come in the future. As the Apostle John would write of, a time when uh, there is no suffering, no pain, no, not even any tears, a time of wonder where the fullness of the glory of God is revealed. We are in the not yet now the place in between the tension of the kingdom of God kind of revealed but not fully present. And so, part of our foundation has to be a trust in God, but also a perspective that sees God is at work on a much grander scale than we can comprehend, understand, or imagine. And we are invited into that story. Because here's the thing, if you're a Christian, if you've come to faith, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, well, I'm sorry to say it, but your life isn't really your own anymore. You offered that up to God. You said that He is Lord, that you are not Lord. That is core to what it is to be a Christian, that we have put our faith and our trust in Him. But yet somehow, so often, we keep on trying to grab our own little bit back. <laughs> For what? I feel like every time I try and grab something back, I do more harm than good. But we can learn to trust, to put our faith in Him. And when we do, we partake in a story so much grander than just our own. Here's the thing. Without God in my life, my story is not a terribly remarkable one. What do we say? Callum lived, he strived, he did some decent stuff, he did some not-so-decent stuff. He maybe met some remarkable people along the way, and then he died. I mean, each of us, for the most part, our story is but a grain of sand in the endless moving of time. It's a bit more, but I realize, but it's, it's realistically not that remarkable. But yet with God, 
it changes everything. We are invited in to be part of a story so much bigger, so much grander, where God is at work through all creation, bringing things to the fulfillment of His glory, of what everything was always purposed to be, a place of life and wonder and hope and love that we can be part of building that here and now, and we can have hope for the fulfillment of that in the future. Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 8. And I think they are going to come up on the screen because this one's a little bit longer. What we are suffering now is nothing compared with our future glory. Everything God created looks forward to the future. That will be the time when His children appear in their full and final glory. The created world was held back from fulfilling its purpose. But this was not the result of its own choice. It was planned to be that way by the one who held it back. God planned to set the created world free. He did not want it to rot away. Instead, he wanted it to have the same freedom and glory that his children have. We know that all God created has been groaning. It is in pain as if it were giving birth to a child. The created world continues to groan even now, and that is not all. We have the Holy Spirit as promise of the future blessing we also groan inside ourselves. We do this as we look forward to the time when God adopts us as full members of His family. Then He will give us everything He has for us. He will raise our bodies and give glory to them. That's the hope we had when we were saved. But hope that can be seen is no hope at all. So we are patient as we wait for it. In the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us when we are weak. We don't know what we should pray for, but the Spirit Himself prays for us. He prays through groans through deep, too deep for words. God, who looks into our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit prays for God's people just as God wants Him to pray. We are in a time of now but not fullness, when glory is there in part but not in full, when creation is groaning for what it is supposed to be but what it is not yet. And we can see that groaning without looking too far on our own doorstep. The pains, the struggles, the uncertainties, both for the everyday folk and for the world itself a place of tension. But our hope is in something beyond what we see in front of us. Our hope is in the one who saved us, who loved us, who calls us, who gives us an identity and a purpose and says, you are mine. Go and help me build what I am building. Your identity is in me. You are a child of God. working to an end that we can hope for, that we can dream of, but we cannot see in full. When that glory is 
all around us. But for now, we are called to patience, to long-suffering, if that is our path. Waiting, knowing that things are not as they will be. So I invite you, I encourage you, I challenge you to be one of His children and to be part of what He is doing, to discover the freedom that comes from trusting in Him. And out of that trust, not being overwhelmed by the pains of this world, from the tiniest gripes to the heartbreaking anguishes. Because as the old saying goes, this too shall pass. But His love, that remains forever. I'm just going to pray. Almighty God, we thank You that we can put our trust and our hope in You. Help us to let You become our foundation, the anchor point of our lives, so that no matter what may come our way, from tiny frustrations to overwhelming situations in each and every one of them, we know a God who is with us, a God who is for us, and a God that calls us into a bigger perspective on what the wonder of life can be, who calls us to see what you are doing in this world, what you have been at work at from the beginning to now and far beyond, that our perspective may be of that hope, that future, and that glory, which we can bring about in part in the present, but in fullness to come. Let us see you, let us know you, let us trust you. Mighty God, I pray. Amen. I'm just going to continue worshiping together. Over to the band.